welcome to this very special episode of Sharing the Mic with Frontline Aids. I'm Ben Plumley, host of A Shot in the Arm podcast, and we're here in New York recording around the UN General Assembly. And this is the first of two episodes that we're presenting for you. And in this episode, we are going to meet a number of the partners, the actual country leaders of the Frontline AIDS Partnership, who are on the front lines really addressing the challenges and the opportunities that the HIV AIDS response and indeed the broader response to health is affording civil society. So, with further ado, let me introduce our guests. So, the first is Jupram, who is the executive director of Kana. Mm. Uh, Jupram, it's great to see you again. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Kana, where you're yep. based, what you do? Yep. Thank you so much. Um, Kana is uh, really um, one of the uh, linking organizations from the early day of the International HIV AIDS Alliance. We was uh, one of the projects in 1996, and then we localized into our own organization in 2000, where we got the recognition from the government. And right now, uh, Kana um, doing, we still maintain our core work on HIV from the early day, uh, but uh, we expand our role to more focus on HIV related to TB, HIV related to uh, sexual reproductive health, and family planning, HIV related to non-communicable disease, and HIV associated with the uh, pandemic preparedness, prevention, and response, where we also involved in COVID-19 uh, community uh, uh, communication, risk communication, and community engagement, as well as try to ensure uh, we continue to maintain services on the ground for people living with HIV, people affected by TB, and ensuring that the no stock out of the drug, and but importantly, making sure that these people are safe mm. from mm -hmm. uh, COVID-19. Um, we also doing some aspect around promoting the uh, human rights, uh, especially the right among the uh, the most marginalized and vulnerable population, to making sure that their uh, right to healthcare, you know, are really uh, received and uh, obtained and provided by a service provider. And we're looking at uh, how these people can continue to voice out their concern, uh, uh, continue to be, uh, meaningfully engage in HIV, TB, and uh, issue concerning that affect their life. I do Thank think you. that Kana uh, has been a world leader <laughs> in forging the links between HIV and um, other issues. And that's so important in this decade of the 21st century. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I think Kana is just driving the agenda globally. Thank so thank you. Thank you. Our next guest um, is from an organization that's close to everyone's hearts, mm. the Alliance for Public Health in Ukraine. And we are joined by Zahed Edel Islam, Islam yes. who is the director of treatment. Um, it's so great to have you here. Um, uh, Zahed, what What's important to you this week? Uh, are you pleased that uh, Zelensky got so much coverage at the start? Well, absolutely. Thanks, Ben. Uh, good to be here. And uh, yeah, I think uh, Alliance for Public Health was partner with Frontline Ace, as you know, uh, as like Kana back in the days of 1999. 
And somewhere along the line, around 2005, we also became independent as an organization. And now Alliance work with, um, strategically we work with HIV, but also tuberculosis and hepatitis. Of course, COVID. And then since war broke out, we needed to actually expand our activities a little bit more going into humanitarian aid support and also providing, you know, people with uh, uh, transportation and giving different kind of humanitarian support that usually we never did before. So these were kind of a new area we needed to embark because the country was really uh, got into war. So, and a lot of things have happened over the last 18, 19 months. And the Ukraine and the Alliance uh, for Public Health, the resiliency of the people and also the organization and the system has actually shown that Ukraine can withheld uh, uh, such tragedy. So what we are looking at, I think it's very good that Zelensky was here and he got, I mean, he should be getting the coverage he got. And also yesterday there was a prize on tuberculosis called Kochon Prize mm. was given to Ukraine as, you know, the one of the country and the organizations that who are working so hard in the last year to actually uh, uh, progress the tuberculosis. I think one of the things that's so interesting about Alliance for Public Health is the way that you have really stepped up to the plate when Russia started destroying healthcare facilities. Uh, it was the Alliance that was doing these mobile clinics, transporting exactly. people. Yeah. And I, again, I yeah. think there is, um, in the context context of all kinds of emergency responses, right. there's a really key lesson there we to were, be shared. Exactly. We were actually, you know, the country was, since the war started, everything got collapsed, right? So there was issue of supply chain, shortage, and et cetera. So working with the donors, we were able to ensure the supply supplies of medication for especially most vulnerable population, people injecting drugs like opioids and, you know, those drugs were available. And also people who fled the country being in Europe and other neighboring countries, we were able to ensure wherever they went so they could have a connection to a healthcare facilities. For example, if someone needed TB treatment or HIV treatment, they could tap into our uh, sort of, um, uh, how do you call it? Uh, uh, this is not a WhatsApp, but there's another one. Um, you don't need to, you don't, we don't need to promote it, but basically yeah. an app. Yeah, an app. Yeah. app yeah. yeah, communication apps where you could actually uh, do as a um, bot, chat yes. bot. Yes, yes. a chat bot, you could actually direct the patients where to seek support and everything. Mm. So we were able to do that at the very onset of the war and nice. which actually helped quite yeah. a lot of people yeah. accessing the services. So, I mean, for us from this week, w what we would like to see that uh, TB, H, uh, um, uh, UHC, as well as PPPR, those are adopted, yeah. declarations are adopted and also have some kind of follow-up. Yeah with those adoptions so that not like, you know, because some countries has broken the silence, they have, you know, not kind of completely endorsed it, but we would like to see that even despite that, this, uh, uh, you know, declaration has been adopted and followed through. Yeah, yeah. that would be something that yeah. we would like to see happen. And last and by gosh, absolutely no means least, um, a longtime friend of a Shot in the Arm podcast, uh, Arasa, um, which is Southern Africa's really leading human rights NGO, 
And um, of course, we have a new executive director of Arasa who is joining us today, Ntombi Muchuchuti, the executive director. Are you your Zimbabwean, yes. uh, Ntombi? Are you based in um, Zimbabwe or are you based uh, in South Africa? I'm currently based in Zimbabwe. I'm supposed to be based in Vindok, Namibia. Oh, that's right, Namibia. Yes, but I'm still in Zimbabwe. So rights, uh, human rights and Africa in a very, very broad way are really on the top of the agenda at the moment. Certainly. (laughs) (laughs) Understatement. Uh, You must be extremely busy at the moment. Certainly we are. And um, I think as an organization post-COVID, we realized that uh, there are many things that are, are not in alignment with the rights of human beings. And top of the agenda for us, I think, is the is the commitments by countries and also the commitment by the development partners. For Arasa, what we are mainly focusing on is HIV prevention and uh, universal health coverage and Esara uh, HRA. And why we are here precisely is to ensure that these declarations are adopted. And for us, looking at the PPPRA, we are saying this is not the first pandemic that we have had mm-hmm. globally. And um, we want to see that what does the adoption mean, especially for the countries where we come from. We also recognize that um, countries are at different levels, both economically and uh, in terms of the progress to the SDGs. What does the universal declaration mean to the countries at the, the lowest or the bottom of the food chain? And does the declaration take cognizance of the diversity and the the various levels as to which countries are, do declaration come with a package or is a prescription and everyone else will go home and mind their own business? So as Arasa, we are here. And um, surprisingly, when you look at the, um, the organizations from the civil society that were accredited to be part and parcel of the UN, uh, UNGA, I would say, there are very few civil society organizations which actually portrays the lack of appreciation and understanding of the accountability framework. If the declarations at the end of everything here, who has to ask who to account to whom? So the absence of civil society or the limited number of civil society, I think is also one of the things that um, makes it um, a challenge to demand accountability. Uh, you do a wonderful segue to bring us into the <laughs> the first discussion item, which is around, you know, the engagement of civil society in this week. Mm. Um, believe it or not, 23, 22 years ago, I was the UNAIDS civil society coordinator for the first UN General Assembly special session on HIV. 2001. Yeah, 2001, yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't changed a bit. Um, but what was so interesting then was the flourishing of civil society organizations who yep. were part of the event. Yep. And this week, and we're in a little bit of an alphabet soup with pandemics, preparedness and response, um, high-level forum with the tuberculosis, high-level forum with the um, universal health coverage, coverage. forum, uh, there's a lot happening this week, but it really does seem that civil society is being systematically and deliberately excluded. Is that your sense? Mm, I, I would say um, 
this is the UN week, right? Uh, but I really uh, love to see it's also UN week all about the global uh, health week. But importantly, uh, when we're talking about addressing the global health, who are the people that most suffer? Are the community on the ground? And who are the people that are close to this community, civil society, a community-based organization? And these are the people that work alongside with the people. But when it comes to discussion, there is a limitation of the engagement of these people. So it's very, very, um, and somehow, you know, compared to uh, UN special session on aid in 2001, where you like to say, you know, there is a big number of people living with HIV come and discuss and share their view. But here, it's still very limited. And and but like our uh, colleague mentioned, we would love to see that these three political declarations should be adopted. Adopt in a way that the community right and gender are well included into that political declaration. Because whenever the situation comes, when you talk about UHC, when you talk about pandemic preparedness, it's about people, right? It's about people. When you talk about TB, it's about people. And you cannot talk about pandemic, future pandemic, without talking about current pandemic. Mm. HIV, TB are still, you know, these are the two pandemics that kill so many people and have been declared since 1994 for uh, TB. But over the past, what, 20 plus year, this still issue. We, we see some change. We see some progression. But we should not keep 4,000 people lie loss of TB every day. Yeah. We cannot say future pandemic without having the discussion. Mm. You know, and we cannot say about, you know, UHC without looking at who are the most marginal marginalized people to HIV and TB. You know, these are the people that should be well covered. We cannot have a good resilience without having community resilience. Health strong health system is about com strong community health community system, so it have to be in somehow to align together. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Zahed, I think you've had the uh, dubiously uh, pleasurable task of keeping track of these uh, declarations. Where are we? Because a number of countries basically threw a spanner in the works to say we're not signing. At the start of the week, the Secretary General was able to get his report um, uh, accepted by the General Assembly, but not by consensus. Mm. Where do you think we're going to end up this week? Well, I think when, like, two days ago, when we first received this letter that eight countries or seven or eight countries, which actually decided not to adopt the resolution, we were a little bit disappointed. Yeah. I mean, not a little bit, we were very disappointed. <laughs> very disappointed. <laughs> very disappointed in a way that we have been working for the year mm. in order to build this momentum of this declaration. And we have worked in the country with our, our uh, politician, with our civil society, and, you know, not only in country, but also internationally coordinating with different uh, uh, organizations to kind of build in that, text that which were in in this declaration and now at the very last moment you get this information you thought maybe this is the end you know we can't go any further so there was immediately i think there were quite a lot of uh, uh, you know roar within the community saying 
this can't happen. So we need to actually do something. So there are some, you know, appeal, the letters and everything went through. And so when we saw, day before yesterday, actually when we saw that um, the SDG summit, the declaration when it was adopted, we thought, well, there is a chance. There is a chance that we could still have our advocacy, make big noises, and also try to make sure that at least some of those language, at the moment, what we are looking at, maybe the declaration to be adopted, is not going to be perfect. We know that. But I think we can work on that. So, because civil society who have worked on these, all of these declarations, they know what needs to be done. And they have already communicated, they have already in, in the part of the system. So I think what, uh, it was disappointed, very disappointed, but I think we are looking at perhaps, given this two yesterday and the day before, we are hoping that we may be able to get through it. So once we can do that, I think once, if the declaration is adopted, I think that it will come to us as a community to hold them accountable on the declaration. So this is what we are looking for. And Tommy, I, I've got a difficult question for you. Given, <laughs> given where we are and given what Zahid has, has described, um, some commentators have suggested that, you know, northern countries really misjudged the atmosphere and the mood um, of coming into this um, UN General Assembly week mm -hmm. and the sense that this was really Africa's chance to shine. Um, and um, both with the Ukraine war, but also the fact that so many heads of state from um, the Security Council didn't bother to show up, and I'm thinking of the UK and France as a, a primary example, that basically the wind was taken out of the sail of uh, this moment for Africa. Mm -hmm. And it was a reflection of what is essentially still quite a neo-colonial view of the world from the north. What's your sense of how we got to where we are? I think precisely the fact that um, the, the north um, didn't see it critical to be here shows the prevailing situation. And uh, looking at the global south and the global north, the need for 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 being committed or for for the for taking i would say these declarations seriously is not an option for the global south it's a mandate and i think um because of the situation that is uh just came out of the covid you saw the distribution of um the covid response mm. you saw how much africa uh was given too little too late you saw how then the patency and science was controlling the global south. So for south, for the global south, I think for me, it's not a desperate measure to come, but also to come and showcase how south, how the global south or how Africa can be coordinated and can, can come together as a, as a team to try and address issues that affect the global south. Mm -hmm. And the solutions for the Global South should come from the Global South. So the adoption of this declaration will probably provide a platform when everyone goes back home to say, where do we start? Where are we as ourselves? And it actually shows that um, not the lack of commitment per se, or I would say the lack of prioritization by the North, where everyone else is taking it slowly and maybe thinking that is not much of a critical issue. For the Global South, it is. Mm. Well, I... 
guess that is a a good place for us to end this segment. You have your work cut out for you this yeah. week. Um, and um, you really get the sense that we have crossed a Rubicon that global health particularly cannot continue in the way that it has done so in the last 30-odd years. Um, just want to make one yeah. comment. You know, when the the global north say that we want everyone to be inclusive, mm -hmm. but they just want us on the table, but not to take our recommendations into account. They're just ticking the boxes. But I think we need to change that. Mm -hmm. We should be there to equally make the decision and also take the benefit of it. At the moment, I mean, COVID has clearly shown that you know, there was clear racism and discrimination for low middle income countries where, you know, the, the, the rich countries had vaccine in a stock expiring mm -hmm. and most of the low middle income countries didn't have any vaccines. That is outrageous. It's, it is not acceptable. So I think we need to kind of work on that. We need to yep. make sure that it doesn't happen yep, in a future pandemic. Yeah, I think that is also critical that the slogan that most people say, you know, uh, it, the when talking about pandemic, we are not safe if no one is safe. Yeah. So until everyone is safe, so then the world is safe. So I think that principle have to be adopted. The principle have to be in action, not just in narrative. Mm -hmm. It's not just a slogan, but it have to be action, and that have uh, to change that way of working together. Solidarity is really, really critical to address this kind of situation. And we're almost halfway through the SDGs. Uh, the pandemic has actually shown how most countries in the Global South has, have actually regressed. Mm. We are not even halfway through the, the target mark. We are almost, some are almost at 30% or 20%, but that's not the agenda. Mm. And then you ask yourself, okay, is the presence of the Global South to endorse and to say we invited everyone, everyone was here, or to make a decision, or to hold others to account, to say, hold on, there are people that are remaining behind. We are not at the same wavelength. How do you ensure that uh, inclusivity actually means that not only we are here physically, but also our um, prioritization is a priority? Mm. So unless if it's a cosmetic kind of a, of a gathering, but if it's... um something that needs to include everyone's opinion, then it has to be re-looked re at appropriately. Mm. Well, Ntombe, Zahed, uh, Jubram, thank you very, very much. Good luck for the rest of the week. Uh, I hope you'll be coming back and keeping us uh, abreast of what, <laughs> of what happens when the real work starts. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we'll take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much to Jupram, to Zahed and to Ntombi. And thanks to our director and producer, Eric Espera of Newsdoc Media. Thanks to Chad Parisman, our New York producer. Thanks to the Frontline AIDS Partnership and particularly to Ali Liu. Hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to seeing you in the next.